Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Looking for hair removal tools that not only deliver smooth results, but also make you feel totally in control? Enter Conair Girlbomb. They're like your secret weapons for smooth, sleek results. Made just for us. From the ultimate Girlbomb grip to the professional-grade blades, say goodbye to settling for less. With Conair Girlbomb, you get the precision and power that used to only be exclusive to men's tools. So take your hair removal routine to the next level with Conair Girlbomb, available at Walgreens. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And Senate Democrats have asked Clarence Thomas's close personal friend and benefactor, Harlan Crow, to list his gifts to the Supreme Court justices. We have a star-studded show today. The Daily Show's Roy Wood Jr. joins us to talk about how you roast the most powerful people in the world. The Washington Post, Karen Tumulty, tells us what's next in the debt ceiling showdown. But first, we have the Bulwark's Tim Miller, who will be appearing with me in New York at the Peter J. Sharp Theater at Symphony Space on May 18th, which is next Thursday, along with Charlie Sykes, Jonathan Last, and Sarah Longwell. Welcome, Tim Miller. Back to Fast Politics. You are my favorite. Going for the most guest slots. I'm competing. <laughs> I want to be number one. We're going to look back at the end of the year. We're going to have a ranking. I want to be number one in quality and quantity. You're going to have to murder Rick Wilson. Ugh. Okay, my well, money's on Rick, by the way. Yeah. Um, in, that, in, a, in a match to in, the death? Yeah. yeah. I, I yeah. would also I would also choose Rick in that. You know, there are other areas where maybe I would outshine him. A height competition, for example, <laughs> reaching apples out of a tree, but maybe not in a fight. 
<laughs> I love you, Rick. Molly, we're, we're going to see each other next week. We're, we have a live Fast Politics Bulwark show in New York, and I have a big question for you. I know you're supposed to be asking the questions, but where is the after-after party, the champagne room? That's what I want to know. Where... <laughs> That's right, the after-after party. Okay. We are going to invite people in the crowd, the cool people that come to yes. the event. You can get tickets at bulwark.com slash events, and uh, the cool people we will invite to an after-after party somewhere, not your home. There will <laughs> be a maybe. champagne room. I, we need to. I'm trusting you to pick it, though. This is your neighborhood. And karaoke. Maybe karaoke. Yeah, we'll see. A champagne room and karaoke. Tim Miller, I want to talk to you about the death of democracy. It's puttering along. Republicans looking for a candidate. Seems like they're going to pick someone thoughtful and spiritual. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, you know, based in deep ideological roots, you know, someone who cares about policy, you know, who wants to govern for all Americans, Asa Hutchinson, 1%. He's at 1%. Uh, Liz Cheney hasn't had a New Hampshire today, and I, I saw her at 4%, so that's pretty good. Asa plus Liz, and now we're up, to, we're up to five. We're Now we're getting there. We can round up to 10. Um, no, it's not good. The democracy, can I just, I, I like to be, you know, at least the most, in a, in a room full of dour, anti-Trump you know, kind of folks, either never Trumpers or liberals. There's always a lot of doom casting. I, I would like to shed a little bit of light here. I mean, we had a really nice midterms for saving democracy. Right. right. Maybe not a great midterm for protecting the full faith and credit of the United States as we might be heading as off the debt cliff. But we yes. did have a good midterm as far as, you know, the craziest lunatics loss. I think that there is a right. grow, increasingly growing group of you know the coalition of the of the normal of the decent of democrats right. who, who there's certain people who go over a line and we've seen that so far now there's some concerning things i mean nobody wants to fucking play fire with another coin flip with donald trump and even if you think it's a 70 30 you know likelihood that biden would beat him which i do 30% is still way, way, way too high for like the end of the democratic experiment, you know, uh, um, and right. all the other elections we've had before 2016, you know, neither candidate was proposing the end of the democratic experiment. And that's kind of how I liked it. So 30% right. chance right. is a little right. too high, but we had some good news in the midterms. I, I, the primary stuff so far, and it's early, but it, it is, you have to say it's pretty disheartening. I mean, to see a morning consult pull out this morning with Donald Trump having a 41 point lead. I mean, I've left the Republican Party, but when something really bad happens to your family, even if you've had a falling out for him, it still makes you sad. And boy, right. I mean, that's pretty depressing to see that like, even after everything we've been through, that that's where things still stand. I'm right there with you. I think it's pretty interesting. I want to get high on the bulwark supply <laughs> okay. of that there are decent people who are going to keep our country from sliding into fascism or whatever this is. And I hope it's true. I mean, I do think that it's pretty interesting to watch Trump. I mean, if you could get people together, you would be able to take back this Republican Party. I mean, the problem is I feel like he's got such a hold on the base that it's just untractable. Yeah. And here's the biggest part of the intractability. And it's, it's actually been even more. I was pretty pessimistic about somebody beating Trump in a primary, but I thought it was possible for this reason is that like, you know, the bulwark crowd. And like we said, we're about 5%. Right. Yeah. And many of and part of the reason <laughs> why it's, yeah, thank you. I'm part sorry. of the reason why we're 5% and not 12% is like, 
half of us left, right? Like I'm gone now, right? right? right I mean, right, it's really right. more like the right. dispatch crowd. That's the 5% sticking right, around, right. holding that's out true. hope that the, you know, great classical liberal white knight will come back in the future and, sh- and save everybody. You know, Margaret Thatcher will arise from the dead. But I don't really, you know, see that happening. And the problem is that there is a group of persuadable folks in the Republican Party that like Trump, but do see his flaws, do see that they've lost, right? There's a cult, there's a cult 45 group that's about a third of the party, give or take. And then there's this big middle of the party that like him, but see his flaws. Now, I I don't, to to me, that's insane, but but these people exist. So we have to assess them as they're, they're, and I thought that DeSantis would have a good chance with that group. The problem is that you get in this double bind, if you're Ron DeSantis, to try to appeal to people that like Trump, but might want to move on, which is if you attack Trump, then all of a sudden they're like, ooh, he actually might be a Liz Cheney sympathizer after all. And they start to not like him. (laughs) If you don't attack Trump, then it's like, ooh, this guy's kind of a pussy. Like he's not up for the fight, right? Like he can't do it. And so you have to like walk this really fine line of, of criticizing him, but not too hard, but seeming strong, but not too strong. And it's it's really challenging line to walk for even a talented politician. It's not that clear that Ron DeSantis is that talented. Right. <laughs> this is talented. Now I know. <laughs> I mean, I just want to say one thing about putting fingers, which is. <laughs> I first heard it as putting fingers. And I was like, where are we putting our fingers, Molly? <laughs> um, OK, putting fingers. <laughs> Yeah, I live in the South now. Pudding finger. Pudding fingers. One of the things that I was so struck by is like there was a real national review crowd that was so excited about him. And they were just I mean, because I know because I wrote a piece that said about three months ago, I wrote a piece that said Ron DeSantis is as bad as Trump. And I've always thought he's actually quite scary because he's pretty good at what he does and pretty smart. I mean, he's not good at being a retail politician, thank God, but uh, he's very smart and he can get, you know, if you're not a like, you know, one of the great things about Trump was that he was a complete and abject moron. <laughs> so he would have, and he also could could not stop getting in his own way. Thank God, right? So, you know, he'd, you know, if he had been smart, he could have gotten a lot more scary stuff done. But, you know, this National Review crowd, they they were convinced that this was their savior and they were so they based this on almost no evidence. Yeah, I think they based it on the fact that it is true about Ron DeSantis that Florida went from being a pretty swingy state like a very deep red state while he was there governing in a pretty far right way, right? So if you are extremely, you know, to use Mitt Romney's phrase, severely conservative (laughs) and you want severely conservative policies and you want to win, like on paper, you looked at him and were like, oh, okay, this guy really might be our savior. This guy might be our knight in shining armor. Now, the problem with that was there were a lot of things happening. People moved to Florida, there are a lot of things at play at the same time, right? Like COVID is happening. People are moving, like older people are more moving more Republican. His opponents are like tomato can, Charlie Crist and like Andrew right. Gillum, who is like right, right, right. meth and doing meth and buy. And like, he didn't have the strongest opponents, right? In those two, two states, nothing wrong with bi people. Sorry. That was not a, you know, right. no assault yeah, yeah, to yeah. be if you're bisexual, that's great. But you know, doing meth and being bi isn't, isn't probably the best, you know, resume for governor of Florida. And so these were his, opponents. And so like there were a lot of things that were just kind of working in his favor that I I think that people were assuming or people were wish casting that there was some Ron DeSantis black magic when in reality, 
you know, he just was the beneficiary of, of a wave, you know, that was already moving his direction and he kind of just started to ride it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think that's absolutely right. You know, there was also a fair amount of wish casting, right? Yeah. You know, it'd be like me as a moderate, like being like, oh, I'm from Colorado. Like, oh, Colorado used to be a swing state and now all of a sudden it's a deep blue state and that must have been John Hickenlooper's magic, you know, <laughs> right, and like the exactly. nation is clamoring for centrist, you know, capitalist <laughs> liberalism like John Hickenlooper. And it's like, well, no, actually just a bunch of liberals moved into Colorado and he happened to be governor, you know, like I, I, he's, he's it's a fine guy, but it also pot. Yeah, that's different than, you know, saying, OK, he's ready to be the president. And, and I think that DeSantis, you know, the, this wish casting was like, you know, DeSantis happened to be in the right place at the right time. And people assumed that that meant that he he was doing something special. Yeah, I think that's right. It's pretty interesting to see how stuck this Republican Party is with Trump. And and now we're going to see. I mean, I don't think at this point we haven't had the primaries. We even haven't, haven't even had the debates. But it's hard for me to imagine a world where what is happening right now doesn't continue. I mean, unless the world clamors for a uh, Chris Christie Yet another go at it. Yeah, no. And the cra- I, I'm repetitive on this. I've probably said this in this podcast, but it's worth repeating. The craziest part of and there's so much crazy stuff about all this, but the craziest part about all this is like besides four Republicans in Washington who are like in the cult, everybody just wishes it was Ron DeSantis. It's not just the National Review crowd. It's every Republican in Washington wishes it was Ron DeSantis or somebody right. else. And right. they were 10 votes away from doing it. Had they just gotten, had there, had just 10 people volunteered to, to convict him in that impeachment trial they got seven already which was a lot there'd never been any members of your of the own party in the senate to convict you know a president of their own party in history there were seven they needed 10 more and then trump would have been barred from running all of this you know we'd be focused on all this other stuff and yet they didn't do it they didn't once again they all just cowered when they had the opportunity to show a little bit of backbone and now they're stuck with them and you know it, it really is when you kind of step back and think about that i saw a tweet the other day that made me laugh macabre laughing dark laughing about how like imagine Imagine if a black man had spurred a riot at the Capitol building, was on tri- was on trial for rape, you know, and, and had been indicted for other issues and was investigated for multiple things. And, and people would be like, yes, we're ready for that person to be the president. <laughs> like, never. It's crack. It is just it's mind blowing that he can have a 41 percent lead in a party in the spite in spite of all. You know, this is different than 2016. It's not like, oh, let's take a chance on the game show host guy. It's like we've seen it we've they've seen it all i still believe that desantis has not rejected the fascism and the party if anything he embraces it so you know i don't know that you're better off the democracy is better off with a ron desantis candidacy yeah i mean we 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 disagreed on this last time my final quick point on that is just simply (laughs) i want you to imagine i just want you to really quick i just want you to close your eyes this is my only rebuttal i want all our listeners to close our eyes and i want you to imagine who is in the Oval Office with Donald Trump the next <laughs> right, time, right, okay. and like what that team is going to be? I mean, the it is the guy. It, yes, it is the scum of the earth, the F minus list, and DeSantis. You know, uh, I think there'd be a lot of problems with the DeSantis administration, but you know, I, I mean, I, I think that it would le- at least be a different caliber of, of people running the running the government. Again, you criticize the my pillow guy. Won't someone stand up for uh, stupid people <laughs> with ridiculous facial hair? Someone has to. If it, if it's not us, who? So the debt ceiling. Let's talk. Yeah. 
Let's do it. As someone who is very cynical, I it just feels to me like Republicans in Congress are trying to crash the United States economy to help their guy win in 24. But that's certainly not what's going on, right? Boy, th- th- there's always this question of motive, right? Which is, are they actually trying to tank the economy because they think it helps them? Or do they want to tank the economy because they're anarchists? Or right. do they want to tank the economy because they're incompetent? And it's like, <laughs> you know, maybe a little bit of all, right? And so, you know, I, I think that um, our friend Ben Wittes, I-, I think, put this very well. Uh, he had a, a Substack post, which um, you can check out if you, if you haven't checked out his Substack. But it was like, the problem that Biden has in this is that we're in this game of chicken over the entire economy. And on Biden's side, it's like, obviously, the best case scenario is Republicans folding, right? And and that's how you get out of the game of chicken. But the problem is the other guy in the game of chicken might actually benefit from crashing into you, right? So it's like, imagine you're in a car, you're going 80 miles an hour. The other person's going 80 miles an hour the other way. And their calculation is, I have a better chance of surviving if I just do a head-on crash with you than if I give up. Because if I give up, then when I get back to, you know, my my team to uh, in the pit crew to stretch this analogy as far as possible, like they're going to kill me. Like they're going to scalp me, right? Like like I, I, I have no choice but to crash this or else my party will scalp me and there'll be someone else in, spe- in the speakership, right? right? McCarthy knows that he can't, you know, fold or else the crazies in the MAGA caucus will throw him overboard and replace him with Jim Jordan or whoever. And so... The best. So it's really hard to negotiate with terrorists, right? And that's the situation right. that you're in. And so I, I think that's why we're kind of inevitably heading for some really bad outcome or you know, a very long legal battle, which I think is probably where it ends up, where the Biden administration decides that they can just do this unilaterally. And and then it's up to, you know, the Trump Supreme Court to figure it out. The Supreme Court to decide if they're going to crash the economy or not. I mean, that's it, it seems like in my mind, let's just play. This was the situation was reversed and we had a Republican president and a Democratic Congress that was willing to drive the economy off a cliff, you would never see that. But just say theoretically you were, the Republican would just go ahead and and circumvent them. You would think so. Yeah. I mean, you would think so. I don't, you know, or who knows, like <laughs> we're, we're, we're pretty far down a weird metaphor here. Who the hell knows? Donald Trump might want to, might want to put on the suicide vest with them. I definitely don't want to model, you know, I don't think that Democrats should model authoritarian Republican, right. you know, governance sure. when they're making no, their decisions. Great. I think that sometimes you got to do what you got to do. And there are certain times where I've, I felt like Biden and Obama overstepped on executive order stuff. Um, I, this might not be one of those occasions. I, I just, I, you know, I don't, I've, I was kind of uh, always intrigued by the crazy online mint the coin strategy. I'm open to creative solutions, creative trades here to get around this. But I, I, I think the reality is the Republicans aren't going to budge. And, you know, they don't seem to even be trying. On the Next Level Podcast of the Bulwark, I interviewed Abigail Spanberger about this. And the most interesting thing in that interview, well, we did a lot of fun stuff, but about this topic was McCarthy hasn't even called her. I mean, she's like the mo- great moderate hope in, in the Democratic caucus. Right, I mean, right. she's like one of the most bipartisan people in the whole Congress. McCarthy hasn't even called her. So like that's sh- like he's not trying to cut a deal here. Right? Like of he's trying not. to crash when that's the reality. I, I don't know that, that the administration will have any other choice but to try to you know figure out how to go solo. The math 
is there, right? The math is there for what? For raising the debt ceiling? No, for finding. I mean, you only need Democrat. Hakeem Jeffrey only needs five votes. Right. Yeah. But the problem is then McCarthy has to bring this to the floor and he never will. McCarthy will never do anything that, that gets all these Democratic votes. This is what got Boehner in trouble, right? Like we had the votes to solve the Dream, Dream Act problem, you know, 15 years ago, but Boehner wouldn't bring it to the floor um, because there was a majority of his co- conference that wouldn't vote for it. So there are the votes there. Sure. You only need all the Democrats plus five, but there's no practical way, you know, to getting there. I do think also just on the optimistic side of this, like the Democrats really can use this I think as a political winner, you got to remember like the, the shutting down of the government and stuff in the Obama era did not accrue to the Republicans' benefit, right? Like right, politically, right, right, right. it did hurt no, them. And there's not. a lot of popular stuff in the kind of stupidly named Inflation Reduction Act. There's a lot right. of popular particulars in there that like the Republicans are trying to gut now that I think really can be used against them. Right, right. For sure. For sure. Yeah, I think that's right. So let me ask you... I mean, what is the thing that's keeping you up right now? The main thing that keeps me up at night is just a too late to fix anything about it. Biden health issue. And, you know, God love him. I'm as pro Biden as about anybody in the Never Trumper caucus, maybe not JVL, who's like, you know, kind of uh, bordering into Biden cult territory. But well, JVL and Biden are basically very similar. Yeah, right. Catholic, you know, institutionalists. So uh, there's a lot of things I like about Biden. There's some things that I don't love, but I think that he's done a great job. I think he's exceeded my expectations. So it isn't anything about his performance. It's just, you know, God, if we're heading down, I I just I feel like we're in this in the horror movie. Where like you can see what's gonna happen, you know, you can see where Ghostface is gonna is gonna sneak in the window, and it's like Trump ends up winning a primary, he's losing, he's not popular, and 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 we get into fall of next year, and something happens, whatever it is. People, anyone at any age could have a health event, but obviously the risks are much higher at Biden's age, and you know we go into a chaos situation, and and like that is that's the main thing that keeps me up at night. I just I would feel actually, especially after the midterms, pretty damn confident about all this. If, if Biden was 62, but he's not. That's just a risk we have to live with. And again, in a different world where Asa Hutchinson was the other candidate, it's kind of like, okay, well, whatever. Like this isn't this, you know, right, like the, light, not, the, the fate of right. democracy is not on the line here, but it is. Right. Asa Hutchinson isn't going to be overturning democracy, but good point. So that's what keeps me up at night. Yeah, that keeps me up at night too. All right, good. We can be anxious together. Thank you. Great. I love anxiety. Thank you. We'll see you next Thursday. New York City, baby. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less, like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic, oracle.com strategic. 
Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness, kick back and spread some positivity into the world from smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports on stages and at the box office. Women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to women take the mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. Does sleeping hot keep you up at night? Meet the Lisa Chill Collection. These cooling mattresses work like magic with a cool-to-the-touch cover, zoned springs, and comfy foam layers. Say goodbye to restless nights and wake up refreshed. Lisa's Chill Mattresses beat the heat with ultra-cool covers that whisk away heat, so you always sleep just right. These hybrids blend up to 1,032 breathable springs and plush foams for the ultimate cooling and comfort. And the Chill Collection doesn't just feel great, it looks great too with thoughtful design and pillowy quilt tops. No matter your budget, Lisa has a chill mattress for you. For a limited time, save up to $460 on chill mattresses and get two free pillows. iHeart listeners can save an extra $50 off by visiting lisa.com forward slash iHeart. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com forward slash iHeart. With Lisa, your purchase has purpose. Every year, Lisa donates thousands of mattresses to those in need. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Roy Wood Jr. is a stand-up comedian and a Daily Show correspondent. Welcome to Fast Politics, Roy Wood Jr. Hello, how are you doing? (laughs) I'm good. I'm excited to have you. You are one of the few people who has survived the White House Correspondents' Dinner. (laughs) I think we all survive. It's just a matter of the degree of criticism. (laughs) No, but you came out of that really having done an incredible job. And and I would say that is, you know, more than more than a few people have seen their career uh, go up in flames because of that. I think there's definitely been comedians that have come out of it with varying degrees of criticism, you know, publicly for what joke you should or shouldn't do. Um, you know, and even I got a little bit of that because of the school shooting joke. So I don't think any comedian's immune to it to any degree, but I'm very thankful that most Everything we wrote was received with the intention that we had hoped it to be. Yeah. You know, in terms of just the intention of the joke. Okay, well, did you say Kamala does nothing or did you 
use sexism to point out that that's why that question is even being proposed in the first place. Right. I mean, it is not the easiest time to be a comedian. No, to be a comedian who also wants access to mainstream media and opportunities. Yeah, it's probably some new guardrails that are up. But like the the idea that you cannot go do 50 cities right now and sell a thousand seats in each city or even 300, 400 seats, which is a completely acceptable living. That still remains. That never left. That part of it, I think, is still there. Once you find your audience and find the people who love you, everything else is just extra gravy. And I think the parameters upon which you can now, this is a terrible analogy, the the parameters upon which you can now collect extra gravy as a performer, that's different for sure. You know, you can say the wrong thing and it can get you fired from a TV show or get you pulled off of a late night show, which helps to drive your live ticket sales. So there definitely is a cause and effect to speaking your mind. But, you know, it's just it, it just in my experience and the comedians that I know, even the most canceled and most hated of comedians, they never stop doing 40 cities. Interesting. I wanted to ask you, we both have parents in the business, so to speak. Yes. Many call me a Nepo baby, though I think when you're 44, I'm a Nepo oldie. But I wanted to ask you, your father has this really cool legacy of being a broadcaster and um, covering a lot of, you know, important historic events. And I was hoping you could talk about that. Yeah. I mean, pretty much anywhere black people were getting beat up. <laughs> he showed up with a tape recorder to tell the story. Like that's probably the, the simplest <laughs> summation of my father's time, you know, within journalism, you know, he at the time was working at WVON in Chicago, the voice of the Negro. He volunteered to go with Chicago based Vietnam platoons to be embedded with, you know, they were coming back and telling the stories of how racist it was over there and how they were getting mistreated by the American militaristic leadership over there. You know, they was, you know, the black units were sent in first to be eradicated by the Viet Cong. And then the white unit would come in and kick ass and clean up, you know, it's like, and they would take all the credit. And so, you know, my dad was there to cover that. He went to Zimbabwe, Rhodesia at the time during their civil war took sniper fire there, took sniper fire in Soweto, covering the riots in South Africa. And of course, the old civil rights movement, lots of bullets and dog bites flying there. And uh, my father was there for that as well. Somewhere in the middle of all of that, he still had a couple of kids, raised a family and also did a jazz show. <laughs> right. Just also jazz music. It wasn't all chaos. I want to ask you, though, growing up in a, in a house like that, and I mean, I had similar, my grandfather was more involved in, in civil rights. My mother was more involved in whatever that was. Did you feel a sort of like that this larger mission that your parents had was relevant to you or no? From the beginning, my father always did news commentary, a weekly news commentary, like, like a black, angry Andy Rooney, but about right. race. You know, he did a weekly news commentary show. He took calls. He talked to the people in the streets. And there were a lot of times, especially during the summer, where I would just sit in a radio station with him. I'm drawing and just doing kid stuff. And he would just be going off about what's going on in this world. And here's where you need to keep your eyes open. So, you know, that type of stuff eventually seeps in 
it's inevitable. And then when I got, I remember when I got my learner's permit when I was 15 and my dad made me start driving him everywhere to speaking engagements on the weekend. (laughs) (laughs) So I would go with him to churches and community centers just around this, you know, anything three hours or less. We would immediately just, I would just, he would be swarmed by people. Brother Wood, what you said about that thing, man, keep doing. And then I would sit in the back of the church and just watch my dad just lay fire into America for an hour. And we get back in the car and stop at rallies (laughs) for a burger (laughs) on the way home. I definitely didn't step into that into my 30s, though. I went to journalism because I wanted to do sports. I didn't think that I had that side of me in me. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, it's funny because it it is to have people like that who are public facing and then you have this completely different private experience of them. Yeah, yeah, it it, it definitely is odd in that way. But, you know, for who my father was on the microphone, he definitely was that off the microphone in terms of what he believed and what he stood for. Uh, you know, traveled a lot. I got a lot of half siblings, so I probably didn't get as much of the full father experience, but I definitely got the full him as a businessman and a journalist experience that I for sure got. Tell me a little bit about how you sort of set about these White House correspondence jokes and more, who did you take with you to write and how did you decide and what were your sort of in your mind the possible pitfalls? The only pitfall that I really was thinking about was being misunderstood. I'm okay with somebody not laughing at a joke. I don't care. That's part of the game. But if you think I meant one thing and then you take that and you make it seem like I meant the other, how can we change the verbiage of everything so it fits better? Right. You know, like in that regard, like that's something that I for sure was very paranoid about, you know, myself and my writers, my head writer, uh, Christiana Mbakwe Medina, who's a former Daily Show writer, which is how we connected. Christiana and I, we spoke about trying to figure out how to construct the set in a way where it introduces you to me as a performer, gets you to trust me, and then gain the equity to go with the president and the vice president, all in six minutes. <laughs> Because I have, I was given 15. I ended up doing about 20, 25, I think. But that first five minutes is so pivotal to the entirety of the performance. I have to introduce myself. I have to get you to trust me, which means I need you to make me laugh. Then the next two jokes that I do have to also be funny, but strategic and edgy so that we can establish the guardrails. That's why the school shooting joke is so high up in the set. And... If you notice, there isn't a groaner joke after that. There's jokes people may not laugh at, but in terms of, oh, why would you do that? No, there's no other (laughs) jokes like that. But I have to give you the groaner just to know I have that in my back pocket if I want to use it. Can you talk to me a little bit about the vice president? I actually was on Bakari Sellers podcast today and I was we were talking about her and just I mean, it's I've long believed that she is having the experience on a much larger scale that a lot of black women have and that she's just working twice as hard. And I'm just curious, like she's such a meaningful elected in my mind. And I'm curious, like if that 
weight on you and and just to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, so then to the point of being misunderstood, right? Right. That was a joke that I wanted to make sure that we didn't misstep on. Because the first thing I have to do, I cannot avoid what people have been saying. People say the president is old. I have to have jokes on that. People say Kamala doesn't do anything. I have to address that. But rather than just solely make jokes about it, I found it more interesting to continue following the thread like a journalist into why. Well, why do people feel that way? Well, what has she done? Has she done anything? Okay, well, let's find a joke or two that serves that. And then let's get into what she's done, make jokes off of the policy. And then why? Oh, I bet you it's because she's a woman and she's black. Oh, wow. Would you look at there? She's actually done stuff. Well, why aren't people talking about that stuff? Okay. well, then let's combine that blind spot with the feminism. I mean, with the sexism. And then there's your joke. So then on the other side of that, the hope is that you understand that, yeah, I made a joke about her not doing nothing. But let's also acknowledge that a lot of why y'all are even posing that question is because she's a woman. Yeah. And by the way, Mr. President, great job on being a vice president. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I also think like that that job is the job where if you're doing it too hard, then everyone's mad at you. If you I mean, like, you know, your base, your job is understudy. I mean, that's never going to be something that makes people happy. (laughs) Yeah, there's going to be people who are going to take that, you know, and there were people that said I attacked her. And then there were a couple of articles that came out that said that I defended her and you know, stood up for the vice president and saying that a lot of it is sexism. And, you know, some people, you you can't, whether you agree with me is separate and apart from whether or not you understood. Everybody understood. Now, you can disagree or not agree. I don't care. I'm not going to get into no back and forth, and I'm not going to be doing a bunch of interviews explaining no jokes. If you're that stupid, then I just got to leave you out there in stupid land. <laughs> And then with my next comedy special, then I have more time to play the game with a little more nuance. Talk to me about your show, what you're touring with right now. Yeah, right now. I mean, you know, what's funny about this tour, the happy to be here tour. What's what's interesting about it is that I think that a lot of people believe that who don't know my comedy and here's the here's the double edged sword of it all. Because you don't know my comedy, I have to introduce you to how I see the world within the correspondence dinner. But within the mm-hmm. correspondence dinner, you have to take shots at people specifically. I have to say Tucker Carlson. I have to say Don Lemon. But in my actual stand up, I'm more of an issue driven person than I've ever been a particular person. Like I don't call out people by name on a regular basis. That's not my thing. That's not what I do. I will call out gun control. I will call out women's rights. So, you know, I think on tour, it'll be a lot more leaning towards that. But, you know, I just have fun talking about the nonsensical and the weird stuff, you know, like I actually feel bad for Donald Trump. Like this dude doesn't have everybody has snitched on him. Not a single person (laughs) has not taken a deal. Right. Anybody that's been arrested for dealing with Trump is singing. And that's sad. You're supposed to have at least one friend because people go, oh, Donald Trump, he's he's like a rapper. Not exactly. (laughs) Rappers have people who don't snitch on them. (laughs) I mean, yeah, but Donald Trump is probably going to be the nominee in 24. And I'm sure he'll run a great camp from prison. (laughs) 
<laughs> Who do you think his vice president's going to be? I think Tim Scott. Oh, wow. You know, Tim Scott tried to get a police reform bill passed that checked a lot of boxes that were very similar to the George Floyd policing act that the Democrats were trying to get through a while, you know, a few years ago. And it got filibustered. So the issue becomes, though, how do you have a vice president that's backing police reform? coupled with a president who we know is going to say we got to get tough on crime and we got to evict all the all the Mexicans and we got to deport all the Arabs and, you know. (laughs) Has your life changed since that White House correspondence, since you killed it at the White House correspondence? I got a DM from a really nice furniture company who asked (laughs) me if I wanted an end table in exchange for a Social post. <laughs> Did you take it? No, the world's it was, most expensive end table. No, it was a really nice end table, but I'm like, I'm, I'm not a furniture <laughs> influencer. That also means I have to show you the rest of my house. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I mean, spot spawn con. You know, we once got a when we were doing the, with this podcast. We sometimes get like the if we do an ad for someone, they'll send us the uh, free stuff. It's, uh, yeah, like it's every something. now and then you get something like, oh, okay, yeah, that's nice. I'd promote that, <laughs> but everything else, no. So I want to ask you now, I mean, what's sort of the future for you now? You know, for me, you know, we just have to wait and see what happens on the other side of the writer strike with regards to The Daily Show. But I, I am, if it's two things I definitely had fun doing in the last month, it's guest hosting The Daily Show and doing the correspondence dinner, because those were two different opportunities for me to explore the things that I'm curious about talking about. And that was very, very intriguing to me. And I had a I had a very good time. How long do you think this takes? I do not know. And I'm not even going to remotely try to speculate on that. I just know that no matter what, on the other side of this, we got to have a system where writers are paid fairly, and, you know, and studios are open about who's watching what and where the money's coming in from so we can split the pot properly. You know, this isn't about people wanting to bankrupt the studio. They're just tired of living one paycheck away from bankruptcy themselves. And, you know, I I think that no matter what on the other side of it, late night is going to change as well. You know, and I think economics are going to change because if you have to pay more money to the talent, then you're going to want to make your shows more cheaply. So. You know, we might be, this might be the end of the era. I call it the shiny floor shows. Right. You know, the shiny floor and then the big band and all of that, you know, but what does political satire look like? Because there will always be Americans who have a desire to laugh and a desire to make sense of a lot of the BS that's going on in the world. So, you know, I want to be somewhere in the chair, you know, quarterbacking that. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. Hi, it's Molly, and I am wildly excited that for the first time, Fast Politics, the show you're listening to right now, is going to have merch for sale. Over at shop.fastpoliticspod.com, you can now buy shirts, hats, hoodies, and tote bags with our incredible designs. We've heard your cries to spread the word about our podcast and get a tote bag with my adorable Leo, the rescue puppy on it. 
And now you can grab this merchandise only at shop.fastpoliticspod.com. Thanks for your support. Karen Tumulty is a deputy opinion editor at The Washington Post. Welcome to Fast Politics, Karen. It's so great to be here. We're delighted to have you. I wanted to talk to you about the debt ceiling fiasco. It feels like, I mean, I know this is not the first time Washington has found itself here, but it does seem like the scariest. Oh, absolutely. Because I think it's it's kind of an entirely different mindset in the House of Representatives than we have ever seen before. And the margins for Kevin McCarthy, even if he were a sort of the shrewdest legislative tactician ever, which he isn't, it would be just a lot harder for him. But I mean, there are a lot of people in the House who believe that they were elected to bring the place down. Yeah. So let's talk about that for a second, because I think that's really important, this idea that they were elected to run the place down, because I do think that we haven't seen that phenomenon in a while. And also that these are, you know, after we saw that kind of marathon of votes that it took for Kevin McCarthy to become the speaker, I mean, you look at the final holdouts, the people he literally owes his speakership are of the, again, you know, the we need to use this to get all the leverage we can. And of course, as it's become almost a cliche to have to explain to people, no, this is not, the debt ceiling vote is not about controlling spending in the future. It's just about paying your bills from the past. Right. Yeah. I mean, that I think is a real problem. And I mean, that seems like a failure of Democratic messaging, right? Like Republicans don't do this to Republican presidents. Well, that's for sure. And also, I think it's just kind of a fake, even as a political issue, it's a fake. My my colleague, Paul Kane did a terrific piece over the weekend where he looked back at, you know, the dead ceiling vote. It's not anything that ever comes up against people during election season. This this is not a it should not be a hard vote. Right. No, exactly. I mean, again, this is not the time you negotiate a budget when you've already spent the money. Well, the other thing is there is actually a budget process in Congress that they ceased to follow starting about a decade ago. In fact, Congress has not actually passed a budget resolution since I think 2016. I mean, they don't even use the processes that they have. Um, They don't pass appropriations bills the way they, they are supposed to. They just kind of ball it up in a big hairball at the end. They don't even use the tools that they have had since the early 1970s to bring spending under control. They just love to have these these kind of near-death experiences. So I want to ask you, because I'm thinking a lot about Nikki Haley's ill-fated presidential run. I mean, I guess we can't call it ill-fated yet, but it certainly does seem like she's not that things are not, you know, I mean, is she polling even as well as Mike Pence? It is sort of hard to see what, at this point, at least what the natural Nikki Haley constituency is. But, you know, there may come a time during this 
campaign season is during this primary season where she has a moment. Right. No, it's true. But I wanted to ask you about this because one of the central things she has focused on is the national debt, which is fascinating because that is something that almost no one else has had any interest in and has really fallen out of fashion on the right and on the left. So I, I, you know, I try not to two sides, but on this one, nobody is pro paying down the debt except Nikki Haley. So, I mean, I just, it seems so antiquated when she brings it up, but that is ultimately what these House Republicans, that is their whole argument here, right? Yeah. And look, this is a real issue. The debt as a percentage of our gross domestic product is huge. And, you know, it is something that we are going to need to grapple with if, if you know, we want to assure the not only the future, but the present. And also, if we want there to be room for investments for things like dealing with climate change. And there are, by the way, some pretty obvious things to do about it, starting with somehow bringing entitlement spending under control. But you start talking about that kind of stuff and, you know, everybody runs. We could also cut the military. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm just saying we're going to do things that make people crazy. The military spending, though, right now is as a percentage of right. our economy is is a pretty low percentage in historical terms. Plus, we've got the fact that, you know, we're essentially trying to help Ukraine fight World War One in Europe and right. facing the prospect of World War Three in China. In China. Yeah. No, I mean, it's definitely a real problem, though. I still, you know, like with so many things like with Medicare, you could fix a lot of this by fixing immigration. Well, that's true. I And that, you know, used to be something that the Republican Party was very much in favor of. I guess I'm showing my age. Right. I mean, I just wrote a big piece on no fault divorces comes out, I guess, today or tomorrow. And in it, I talked about how, you know, the person who brought no fault divorces into being, which was a very, fe you know, ultimately a very feminist thing that prevented, you know, a huge number of of female suicides and caught, you know, was very much a good a good for women was a, a certain divorcee named Ronald Reagan. That is exactly correct. And in fact, I, I deal with that just a bit in my biography of Nancy Reagan. Back in, in the day when in the late 1940s, when Ronald Reagan was getting divorced from Jane Wyman, the grounds that people would cite was some, was something called mental cruelty. And it really always bothered Reagan. I mean, justifiably that, you know, mental cruelty was, uh, you know, part of his record. So that is true. Yeah. I mean, we see really in the many ways in which the right has moved in a strange way. There's just been such a sea change in the Republican Party in ways that aren't Trump, that are just things that the differences between W and Reagan. I mean, it's just it's very interesting to say. Well, it's really hard even to define anymore what conservatism is, because for Donald Trump, it seems like conservatism is and patriotism are more a tone of voice than they are a set of principles. Do you think that's because Donald Trump was so charismatic? And again, this is not an endorsement in any way. Important to mention this, but he had this sort of 
political charisma that a Republican politician hasn't had in a long time. And because he was so undisciplined and ultimately was very nihilistic, that was sort of he he sort of abandoned all of the kind of pretense of principle. Well, I think he he was just an incredible brander. Right. I think that, you know, one of the most important things to know about Donald Trump was that he actually trademarked the phrase make America great again. Six, <laughs> right. Six days after the 2012 election, Mitt Romney had just surprised a lot of Republicans by losing. The Republican Party is embarking on this, you know, now infamous autopsy where they were saying, oh, you know, in the future, we are just going to have to appeal more to women and to young people and diversity. Right. And there is a guy sitting there on Fifth Avenue calling up the Patent and Trademark Office. You can actually look this up and trademarking the phrase make America great again. And it's he trademarks it even in those block letters that you see on the hats. Right. I mean, he sort of saw something. He saw an opening in the kind of aggrieved Republican base and a mm. lot of other people that I think nobody else saw. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. And it, and it's funny because, right, that make America great again is not his phrase. Well, that's at one point I I was interviewing him about it and I pointed out that Reagan had also used make America great again. And didn't Lindbergh use it, too? That was America first. Oh, America first. Right, right, right. Sorry. Yeah. When I pointed out to Trump, that Reagan had also used Make America Great Again. He, he said, yes, but he didn't trademark it. Jesus. Yeah, well, there you go. I mean, that is, you know, one of the things that, as we continue on this, I was watching that deposition video from the Eugene Carroll case. When you watch Trump during that deposition, you, you see a different Trump. You don't see the campaign Trump. You see the kind of, uh, I want to say smug and self-satisfied Trump that I thought was pretty interesting that you could be deposed for a civil case and to sort of have no remorse and not even pretend to. But that is also part of his M.O. I mean, he doesn't have remorse. Right. I mean, he just sort of keeps going. And in doing so, he has violated basically everything that we used to think, you know, all the laws of political gravity. But I think you see that a lot, you know, you see that now in a lot of the generation of politicians that Trumpism has spawned. I mean, you see the same thing in a Marjorie Taylor Greene or a Lauren Boebert. It's just like, never apologize. Just keep going. So here's my question. And this is not this is a, a question and nothing else. Does it work for them? Well, I think that as long as they are appealing to a hardcore base, if that is all they need, if that is all that it takes, say, to get you elected in Marjorie Taylor Greene's district, yeah, you can keep going. But the thing about Trump is what he has not done is expand his reach. So you think that as a political model, at some point, this has to collapse. And it did collapse in 2020. Again, they won't acknowledge right. that. But I mean, you know, the Republican Party has only won the popular vote in a presidential election once since 1988. Yeah. It's interesting, like, if you think about it, we're likely going to have Trump be the Republican nominee. I mean, unless something happens. We we now have seen that indict, being indicted 
is certainly not disqualifying to the Republican base. I think that's a fair thing to say. I mean, don't you agree? Oh, yeah. This has become not a shade. It's become a stigmata. Right. <laughs> exactly. I mean, so terrifying to think of it as a stigmata, but you're absolutely right. So if that is not disqualifying, then it seems that even the promise of more indictments will not necessarily change the calculus for Donald Trump. I am one of the, you know, and again, this has sort of become conventional wisdom, but I think that, you know, the the indictment that we have seen thus far, you know, is not the strongest case right. that that could be, you know, set against him. Potentially the Justice Department could come up with something more serious, but it is not going to matter to his supporters who are, you know, not a majority and not even close to a majority. And, you know, is a smaller kernel of the electorate than it has ever been, probably. Yeah. I mean, the thing that I'm struck by is just how, you know, if you were to just take a clear eye and look at Republican performance under Trump, right, you would see that they continue to underperform with Trump as the leader of the party. That 2016 was an anathema. I think that's the right word or whatever it is, you know, something that was completely unexpected, but that since then they've tried to recapture that and have been unable. I think that is true. And so, you know, what we're seeing, though, is they are nonetheless sort of increasing their leverage and their use of the tools within the political system. You look at these state legislatures where, you know, Republicans have 28 state legislatures now have super majorities, meaning they can you know, do whatever they want to override a governor's veto. And of those 28, all but nine are Republicans. So you see, you know, they, they are taking what are in their states and the minority positions on issues like guns and abortion, but they are nonetheless forging ahead. I was talking to someone yesterday about Andrew Cuomo, who in one of the worst moments in my career was focused around and <laughs> my worst pieces I've ever written that I continue to apologize for that at the, you know, years and years later was about him. But I just want to, you know, with with Andrew Cuomo, you know, here was someone who had a real Republican attitude for fighting dirty. And he, even he, you know, couldn't get the partisan redistricting the way, you know, a Republican might have and ended up being the reason that Democrats lost the House. Well, it's also they overreached and the court struck them down. I mean, and, you know, that is also part of our system that we should be grateful still exists in some places. Right. I mean, not anywhere where it would have <laughs> You know, not anywhere red, but it is interesting. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about is that in Mississippi, a good friend of this podcast, James Carville, who comes on here a lot, is pretty excited about this governor's race in Mississippi with a candidate called Presley, who is related to the Elvis Presley. And he thinks that there's a world in which Democrats could take back Mississippi as they did with Kentucky. I mean, and Kansas. I mean, does this seem... Like a pipe dream to you? I will believe it when I see it. And <laughs> the one thing I think that is true is that the Democrats are going to have to get a lot more skilled and aggressive at their ground game, at things like voter registration, voter mobilization. You know, the the kinds of things that we saw happen in Georgia are going to happen elsewhere. You're going to need more than just a charismatic, appealing candidate. 
And I do think that in a lot of places, the Democrats have really neglected that. They haven't put the money in. They haven't put other resources in. They haven't paid the kind of attention to that stuff. But if you don't have the, you know, people registered, and if you don't have assurances that they're actually going to vote, it doesn't matter. Right. It's certainly true. And I think you're you're totally right. So what is I'm going to ask you the last question here, which is what is the thing that is keeping you up at night? Oh, boy. So many things. <laughs> I honestly am just afraid of the kind. And again, I mean, November of 2024 is a long, long way away still. But there are just so many ways for people to get in and mess with the system and you don't find out about it until it's too late. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That keep that'll keep me up tonight. <laughs> Thank you, Karen. I hope you'll come back. I'd love to. Thank you so much for having me. And now your moment of fuckery. Jesse Cannon. Molly Jung Fast, there's some big news in a trial that you were mentioned in. Yeah, I try to stay out of trials, but somehow... (laughs) You're not doing a good job lately. Not doing a very good job. Turns out that lawyer, Roberta Kaplan, you may know her from arguing the Defense of Marriage Act, she's a pretty good lawyer, perhaps a better lawyer than Donald Trump's mafia lawyer... Takopina? Joe Takopina. Either way, E. Jean Carroll has won her case against Donald Trump to the tune of $5 million. Again, anyone knows, I'm sure that Donald Trump will try desperately to not pay it, but she did it. She wins $5 million. Congratulations to E. Jean Carroll and to Roberta Kaplan. It's not fuckery. It's just great. Congratulations, guys. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. You can rent a car, a house, even that little black party dress. So why not rent the stuff you need for your home, too? The place to do it is errands. Choose from thousands of new products from the brands you love, online or in store. Pick a payment plan that fits your budget and pay a little at a time until it's yours forever. But if life changes, you can return it anytime or even upgrade it with something new. Rent what you need. It's better at errands. Approval not guaranteed. Restrictions apply. See store for details. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with Cheap Caribbean Vacations means you have more freedom to do your deal. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas and more, or simply soak up the sun and sand in a tropical paradise, Cheap Caribbean Vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder. Or find a featured all-inclusive package to Iberostar Hotels and Resorts and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com.
Digital trends show up every day in business decisions and actions. West Monroe is the number one strategic partner translating technology into financial value for companies. The This Is Digital podcast applies West Monroe's two decades of secrets and best practices to your business's benefit. Favorite past topics from the last three seasons include how AI and the next generation of employees are shaping the workplace, becoming a product company, Highmark's journey, and what does it mean to put the customer first? Learn more at westmonroe.com.